Hello, and welcome back to another episode of EP Architect, the official podcast of the AIA New York State Emerging Professionals. Just a reminder to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. We all are familiar with the day-to-day description of an architect, but we also know that architects are more than a pretty building and have much more to offer with their skills and services. Today's episode, we are speaking with one architect who's taken the natural disasters of his homeland of Puerto Rico and used his background to transform Puerto Rico's future as one of resiliency. Jonathan Marvel, FAIA, is the founding principal of Marvel and a fellow of the American Institute of Architects. Born in Puerto Rico, Jonathan is an architect and urban designer with over 30 years of experience providing architectural planning, community, economic, and sustainable development of public spaces, educational institutions, single and multifamily housing, libraries, museums, and large-scale mixed-use developments. He is a co-founder of Resilient Power Puerto Rico and ProTechos. Thank you for joining us today, Jonathan. Thank you, Felicia, and good afternoon. I am delighted to be here to talk about all of the wonderful work that we've been doing in San Juan, Puerto Rico, since Hurricane Maria. And um, I'll just be happy to follow your lead if you want, or I can just start by jumping in and uh, rambling away. Okay, well, I can't wait to hear you ramble. But first, why don't we start off with telling us a little bit more about yourself? I mean, you were born in Puerto Rico. And did you go to school there? Did you study architecture? Give us a little bit of your background and how you got to here. Well, it's a very long story. I'll try to make it brief because we got to get to some really good stuff. I was born and grew up in Puerto Rico. My parents moved there about a year before I was born, and they were from New York and came down to work on on uh, low-income housing and social planning, my father being an architect and my mother being a social planner. So I grew up in a household of architects and planners, and it was not a very easy for me to do anything but become an architect. So I grew up going to construction sites and watching all of the teams pouring concrete in formwork and then pulling off the formwork. And when you're four years old and you watch a liquid turn into a solid almost overnight, it's pretty mind boggling. So I think architecture was a very natural thing for me to want to study. But I didn't really, knowing that I wanted to be an architect, I didn't really focus on it in any academic way. I did study geography and painting and art history and theory in a liberal arts way, knowing that I was going to be going on to graduate school and focusing on architecture. So I had a very the good fortune of having a very broad education before jumping into to study architecture, which I did finally and focused on it. And after four years of graduate school, landed in New York City at the age of 26, because I wasn't going to go back to San Juan to practice with my father, who would be a wonderful mentor for me architecturally. But I don't know of anybody who really wants to 
work for their father right away. Maybe after, you know, people do after a few years of going out on their own. So I landed in New York City and worked and hopped around as one does, working in a lot of different kinds of offices before I had my license, which I took the professional exams in in the year 1990 and passed and right away said, okay, I'm going to open up my own office. I didn't really want to um, continue working for other people. Not that I, I just felt like I'd learned enough in school and then professionally to, to want to try it out on my own. And I was very lucky to have already been volunteering for a not-for-profit called Visiting Neighbors. And they were in the village in Manhattan where they Visiting Neighbors was a not-for-profit that paired up a teenager with an elderly person that was basically homebound. And the group that we did, we paired up teenagers and, and elderly people and with weekly visitations. And it was so cool to make both the lives of a teenager enrich with the perspective of an elderly person. An elderly person gets the the lively, crazy, bubbly teenager to talk to once a week. Anyway, they needed new offices. So all of a sudden, I was able to have a client from this not-for-profit that I was already helping out as a volunteer. And I think that essentially has became a theme for my for my life and career where, where I really was able to join organizations of, that I was interested in and in being a part of. And luckily, they all needed the work of an architect. So I was able to get a little professional experience in areas that would have been difficult if I had just had to compete for those jobs as an outsider. So having an inside track, if you're a young architect, is very, very helpful. And the not-for-profits of the world is the key thing in our society. We all know that in a capitalist environment, there's a lot of philanthropy and, and a lot of benefactors that are built into this capitalist world, which I think is is okay, but in the event of, of being able to help the underserved, and, and, and I think that's another theme that runs throughout my life is growing up in Puerto Rico in a society where that sharing is the most important quality for helping the have-nots, anybody that knows their American history and society knows that there are some very, out of the lower 48 states, Puerto Rico is by far, if it were to become a state, it would be 75% of the island would be in a, living in a, in a level of poverty compared to any of the lower 48 states. So when you grew up in that kind of environment, you're always figuring, okay, how can I help out? And that builds in, I think, a, a, a basic philosophy, which one, I think it's, and I'll end this monologue right now by saying the key words to the future of society is our pervasive altruism. We have to be ready to be altruistic in a way that spreads the love as much as, as we possibly can as individuals to help out those who, who, who are not as fortunate as we are. It seems like you started pretty young in understanding what it was that you wanted to get at and how you wanted to shape your own practice and what you ultimately wanted to do. Some people are not, let's say, 
as lucky or in tune to figure that out so early on. So it's pretty amazing that uh, you had those opportunities to do that. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how your practice has evolved and in terms of that being your sort of ethos of altruism, how has your practice evolved in understanding pretty early on that this was the way that you wanted to go and this was the way that you wanted to maybe shape your practice? How has it been since you started your practice until now? Uh, Thank you. You're right. Growing up with with an inkling and with a vision about what you want to do with, with your life is certainly it's a mixed blessing because you go, oh my God, is that I'm feeling like I'm programmed or this is my fate and destiny. I can't do anything else. I'm locked into this path. But on the other hand, it's liberating because you don't have those anxieties about being confused and being a little bit at a loss. And I think going into the practice of architecture, it is a service profession. We are not a banking industry. We're not government. We're not construction. We're not running a factory. We're a service profession, number one. Number two, we have to be entrepreneurial with what we do, particularly if you want to go out on your own. And number three, we're also teachers built into into the practice of architecture. You're always mentoring a younger architect, whether it's in your own studio or you're teaching in an academic environment. There is a lot of educating in what we do. So if you combine the service of the profession, which is we provide a design service to our communities and to our society. Number two, we're entrepreneurs. In other words, we engage in business with with our peer groups. And, and when you engage in business, you are setting up contracts, you have transactions, you are you're working with a within a, an economic environment, and you're part of the larger social network of employment, do either employing people or you're employed somewhere. And that last thing, education. So again, those the three things, the service, the entrepreneurship, and the education are the backbone of what we do in practice. Large scale, small scale, you're still touching on those three really important things. And when it comes to, to juggling those three things, during the course of your business relations and clients and government and civic and all that, we're kind of an anomaly within the within our society. I can't think of too many other kinds of responsibilities that combine those so many interesting facets. So architects have this, and so I'm, I'm really putting a plug for architecture is that architects have the capacity to express themselves in those three areas, which is very interesting. You also have an array of design opportunities that make it fun to be an architect. And so when you say, well, well, how did your practice start and how did it evolve? I would say that you have to have a lot of faith that things will go your way. In other words, good karma positivistic thinking, projecting where you want to be, what you want to be doing into your life, that's the best way to allow your practice to evolve, to allow your your vision to unfold. 
I think, is let it happen organically, but always be ready for that new thing, for that new type of building or a new type of client or a new competition to pursue. I think that we are so lucky as architects to have a chance to contribute our time to society, to draw, to be creative, to build models, to change people's lives through the buildings that we design. And so the letting your practice evolve based on really there's three ways to, that that happens. One is you just talk positively about what you do and people will say, oh, I'd like to work with that person. And on any, whether it's a small job or a big job, always talk positively about what you do and that'll rub off. Number two is be open for the unexpected. Don't say, well, gosh, all I've been doing are residential projects. How can I possibly do something beyond that? I don't really have the experience, but you you never know what's going to walk in the door and be ready to team up with other people that have worked in, in an area that comes your way so that you can use their, their experience as a bridge to open up a whole other building type into your practice. And the third thing is, it takes five years to put up a building or to finish a project on an average. Some take longer, some take shorter, of course. But let's say the average is five years. So that's a big chunk of time. So if you want to be doing something like libraries and you haven't done a library, well, guess what? Start getting involved in a couple of libraries as a volunteer or look for library RFP, RFQs in the world of you know people that advertise when they need professional services in all sorts of different medium nowadays and be ready to to work for free to get that first library job if that's what you want to be doing. In other words, use those five years to point your practice in an area that you want to go in and it will happen. Uh, I think our practice is, is very much uh, an example of that kind of self-directed as well as organically grown in the evolution of our practice, which is now called Marvel, by the way. We just dropped everything else, but it used to be called Marvel Architects. But we took on a landscape architecture team. We brought in two partners as landscape architects. We brought in a planner and an urban designer and an interior designer. So now from a leadership perspective, we are offering a multidisciplinary set of services, which is very exciting. We can we offer that comprehensive one-stop shop, very efficient for some of our clients. Of course, we'll always work and collaborate with other, other professionals doing landscape and planning. And again, as I said before, collaboration and teamwork are essential to the future of our of our profession. So we dropped Marvel Architects to just Marvel because we wanted to to say we we offer a holistic view of the world in our services. So that's that's the long-winded answer to your question about how we evolved. Well, thank you for that. Yeah, I feel like I don't even need to be here today. You're giving us a masterclass off the top. Off the top, you're giving us just a masterclass. And I thank goodness this is being recorded because oh. I can go back and listen to it and, oh. you know, take more notes. You're too kind. You're too kind. I've just been doing this long <laughs> enough to be able to talk freely and openly about about what we're doing and taught for over the years. I've taught for 30 years. So 
I really have stopped teaching uh, before, right about Hurricane Maria, and we can get to Puerto Rico. But I really, Hurricane Maria hitting my hometown uh, really, really sort of refocused my attention in a very 180 degree way. So I stopped teaching and I stopped doing so many things um, in the New York arena so that I could focus on what's happening in Puerto Rico to help in the recovery uh, in 2017. Well, let's get into Puerto Rico. Let's talk about some of the things that you have been doing since Hurricane Maria. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Protetros and Resilient Power Puerto Rico? So those are two separate um, not-for-profits that we started. They're now officially 501c3s, so they have the not-for-profit status tax exemptions, which is really important because it means that the donations that go towards these efforts that we do are tax exempt, and that helps in the philanthropy of how we get got things going. Protechos, which is spelled PR as in Puerto Rico, P-R-O and techos. Techo in Spanish means roof. So it's roofs for Puerto Rico. And what Protechos does is it's about five things all at the same time. I'll try to break it down for you. In a very matter-of-fact way, rebuild rooftops that were blown away by the hurricane. And the rooftops that were blown away, 99.9% of them were these corrugated zinc or corrugated metal sheathing that's hammered down onto wood trusses or wood joists or wood beams that are then framed into the house down below. And that framing is in the tropics being a place for humidity and termites and really uh, probably not the highest grade wood available since it's all imported from the U.S. of A. Nowadays, earlier, the wood the historically was all tropical hardwoods, which are fantastic, but those are very hard to find and very expensive right now. So what Protechos does is it, when the hurricanes come and blow off the roofs of people's homes, and these are simple homes, uh, not concrete bunkers, they're not fortress, fortified fortresses, these are, these are humble homes largely self-built by the people living there, largely with recycled materials, not the best in the world, and maybe not put together with the best fasteners. Certainly, they wouldn't have used hurricane fasteners, which is what we now specify as architects on all, on all rooftops. These are rooftops in informal communities, DIY, and occupied by people that don't have a lot of means, and a lot of elderly, because these are old communities, old, old informal communities, communities that have grown up on the outskirts of, of the cities or in areas that are low-lying estuaries and shores that are difficult to build on or steep slopes, places where, where your normal house construction is not going to happen because if you have enough money, you're going to want to build in a safe place. If you don't have a lot of money, you're going to look for a free plot of land and you're going to build whatever you can. And these are communities that are 50, 60, 70, 100 years old. Some of these informal communities are very much well-established with neighbors and streets and services, but 
the housing quality is still kind of ramshackle. Protetros goes in and identifies the most vulnerable of the roofs that have been blown off in certain neighborhoods, uh, particularly elderly. And we will go in with a crew and re- and put a new roof back on. Sometimes that involves reframing what was underneath the roof because it was all rotten. Sometimes it involves putting in a, a more robust structural system of columns and beams. What we try to do is identify the person most in need and also a person that is, I would say, is is a longstanding member of within these communities. And And these are largely elderly people or families that have extended rooms and roofs. And, and by identifying the right uh, neighbor, that neighbors are helping neighbors. So it's you're helping out one person and then that'll snowball and then they can share their home and their new roof uh, with another family at the next storm. So Protechos is in the roofing business. We accept donations and we go out and buy materials. We train young people on the art of roofing and the art of framing out the ceiling in, in a home. So there's a workforce training program involved in this at the same time. We have paid staff and we have volunteers. Uh, the paid staff are trained carpenters and the volunteers are anybody that, that wants to help out. It's kind of like Habitat for Humanity in that same model. The neighbors help out, the owners help out, and we get volunteers who, who are doing their altruistic exercise and they're helping out as well. And so far, we're, this started the year after the hurricane and we, we've got a great board of trustees. We've applied and received government grants to help give us financing so that we can get up to 100 roofs where we might, I think at the end of this year, 2022, we're going to hit that goal of 100 roofs um, and we keep moving on. So that's Protetros. It sounds pretty incredible. From my point of view, it's really interesting how such a, I don't want to diminish it in any way, but, you know, such a small or a neat, you know, sort of area, you know, while most people think that rebuilding just entirely is what's needed, as we saw with Hurricane Sandy and the Build It Back effort here, you know, it's very interesting how you can start with concentrating and moving into one particular thing and how big of a difference that it can make. And I'm just wondering, how does resilient power Puerto Rico sort of tie into Protecho, if it does at all? Are they two separate? They're two separate entities, two separate boards, two separate and 501c3s and two separate missions altogether. But they do tie in because part of the goal for resilient power Puerto Rico is to have solar panels on every rooftop on the island. And we don't really know what that timeline is, but when you put a new roof on on an old house, that new roof is able to support, I think what we try to do is a minimum of four solar panels, which with some battery backup and four solar panels and a couple of car batteries to store the power and an inverter, you can power up your lights and charge your cell phone and that right there is a step towards resiliency. So Resilient Power Puerto Rico focuses on the solarization of the island 
and Prodotetros is focusing on rooftops. So those two things definitely go hand in hand. And I, I want to dial back to what you were saying about New York City and rebuild by design. You know, in so many of the low-lying areas that were affected by Superstorm Sandy and the surges that happened, these are marginalized communities. Also, a lot of historic buildings were destroyed or compromised. And rebuild by design either replaced the whole structure or allowed a, a renovation, restoration to take place. I firmly believe in the vernacular architecture of our, of our neighborhoods needs to be preserved. The historic buildings tell stories about our families and our past and where we come from. And those are really important stories that empower people and empower neighborhoods and give you a sense of who you are and sense of identity. And so by putting a roof over the most humblest home, it's a way of keeping that vernacular. That beautiful little house that was built in 1920 or 1930 will never be built that way again. And instead of losing those to new concrete homes, which is the trend in Puerto Rico anyway, we're losing a beautiful part of the architectural history of our neighborhood. So I really love to see the reconstruction and rebuilding when, if and when it's possible. And then when we go to Resilient Power Puerto Rico, that group, its mission is to bring renewable energy, which is the best form of resiliency to an island like Puerto Rico, where everything from an energy perspective is imported, whether it's natural gas or diesel or petroleum, bunker oil, coal, all the power plants in Puerto Rico are burning all the above. They're not the cleanest power plants and they're not the cleanest form of energy. And so part of what Brazilian Power Puerto Rico is doing is, is educating and get building examples of how renewable energy can be used and can be deployed. It's getting more and more economical as the prices have dropped on solar panels dramatically. The batteries are getting better, whether they're lithium batteries, which are expensive, or deep cell batteries, which are more affordable. All that, the prices have dropped dramatically. And when the cost of electricity is so high in certain parts of our country and parts of the world, the payback is even faster when you can have solar panels on your rooftop. I'm not excluding wind and hydro as power sources in the terms of the larger picture, but our focus in starting Resilient Power Puerto Rico was solar panels and batteries to store power. And we targeted 200 communities across the island as our starting point. And of those 200 communities, these are the underserved communities. These are the marginalized neighborhoods. These are places that were hit the hardest by the 150 mile an hour winds that tore through during Hurricane Maria. And so there, our starting point were the path of the hurricane among those 200 community groups. And how do we arrive at 200 community groups? Well, I was very lucky, as I said earlier, about being the son of a social planner. My mother has been doing planning in Puerto Rico, working with the underserved communities for the past 50 years. She's written books about them. She's kind of the authority on the island when it comes to where these communities are, who their leadership is, how many people live there, what kind of services they get. So all that's been documented, believe it or not. And by having that as our starting point, it gave us a lot of credibility for people who wanted to help out and donate money to Puerto Rico, but didn't know which was the group to, to help out. We were able to say two things. One is 
if you donate a dollar, your entire dollar goes towards the uh, batteries and solar panels and their installations. We're not going to take an administrative cut. That was our starting point. We now do to pay for our overhead and staffing and all that. We're now paying ourselves because you can't do this forever if you're doing it for free. So we're now paying our, our very modest staff an administrative fee. We had every dollar go to the community centers. And we also had this playbook of 200 very well-sourced community groups already established. These are the people greatest in need. And so that gave us a lot of credibility among the donors. And that helped us raise a substantial amount of money early on to put up to 25 solar hubs. These are microgrids that go onto existing rooftops in on existing community centers where they can already provide services for the people in need. Now they can have electricity that is reliable. It's constant. It's there when there are blackouts. It's there after hurricanes. And so we started with 25 with the donations that we got right away. And then we got another, we were able to uh, source funding for another 25. And we also bought a lot of solar panels and brought them down from Florida. And we donated those to other organizations so that they could do their own hands-on installations. That's evolved now to less of the kind of hardware and hard construction to more software and a capacity building. We're now more in the education department where we're teaching communities on how to write grants, how to sort of analyze how vulnerable they are in terms of their proximity to hospitals and services and flooding. So we have a digital toolkit that allows people to sort of write their own grants and create their own narrative so that they can go and do some self-funding for the project. So that's sort of the the, the next mature phase of, of the organization. Wow, that's it. You're truly living up to your name uh, because that's pretty marvelous. I see it as being not just a rebuilding or a helping out. You're really helping people to have whole living, whole W-H-O-L-E, you know, like uh, to have sustainable lives in terms of the built environment. And I think that that's pretty impressive. And you said that you're about to reach 100 roofs with Protechos, right? At the end of this year? Yes. Yes. <laughs> so what happens next? I mean, besides the sort of education part that seems to be arising as a next step, what happens after you reach number 100? Is that where it ends? Or do you go to 101? <laughs> You know, the, every ending, it becomes the beginning of something else. And Protechos will continue after reaching 100. I think it's it's a way of giving ourselves a, a mini deadline, the pushing ourselves to get there. Without a deadline, things just start to slip. And I think that's probably, everybody knows that your deadline is your best friend for trying to to accomplish. And also in the in the world of, of not-for-profits, where you're relying on on your funding stream. One of our biggest issues for Protechos is now we did get a, a grant, a CBDGR grant from the federal government. The problem is that we have to spend our money and then we get reimbursed. 
we're in a tough spot because we're spending our money too fast and the reimbursement cycle is too slow. So right now we're in the process of trying to figure out financing and bridge loans and complicated things like that. So I think that the organization is evolving and maturing and we're we're learning that it's not easy to be a, a group that that is relying entirely on a philanthropic funding stream. So because we're doing essentially the work for those who don't have the means to do it, we can't rely on our client as our financing base. We have to creatively finance this operation. I, that's going to be in the long haul, the focus of what I'm going to be trying to do, which is how to create financing through low interest or philanthropic programs that give us some bridge loans so that we can use some of the FEMA money and some of the federal money that is going to be pouring into Puerto Rico over the next 10 years. The government's going to be needing good places to to spend that money. And, and we just have to be one of those good places. I'm definitely looking forward to hearing more about it and to seeing this evolve into what it eventually will grow into. But definitely very impressive so far with what I've heard. And I'm sure everybody listening is also very impressed by the work that you're doing and inspired more than impressed, but I'm sure inspired to get involved and especially getting involved with communities and what you said about keeping the vernacular of what these towns are, what these cities are, where you're doing the work and how that so important. And then, of course, for the masterclass that you gave us, <laughs> all the advice. Thank you. Thank you. And, and I definitely don't do this alone. I'm not the only person doing all this wonderful work. There's big team involved in both Protechos and Brazilian Power Puerto Rico with co-founders, Emily Voisman and Protechos and Christina Roig in Resilient Power Puerto Rico and the board, the wonderful board of trustees of Protechos and wonderful executive director that we have, uh, Luis Rey. I go back and forth, New York, San Juan. I help start these, but I'm definitely not involved in the day-to-day. And that's why the teamwork is so vital and critical in everything that we do and the sharing and the the collaboration is that's what it's all about. No, nobody can do anything alone, really. The planet's too small to have lone operators. I think we're all networked and we're all involved in, in the dialogue of making the planet a better place. That's right. I wholeheartedly agree. Well, I want to thank you for being here with us today, Jonathan. Was there anything else that you wanted to? mention teach us all um, before we get going thank you Talisha. and i i do think that what we do as architects is a very beautiful thing and we always have to be looking out for young people that have an inclination to want to become an architect we have to help them it's not an easy service profession to all of a sudden just be a part of. It takes years of studies. It takes years of internshiping and practice to become really good. And if I had the good fortune of having a family of architects to look at and turn to and and be inspired by, but 
if you're a young person and and you love to draw and you and you love to make things with your hands and you're visual and I'm describing most young people love to draw and make things with their hands and are visual so being able to to help a young person learn about architecture and give them access to our process and to to what we do that's got to be on the top of everybody's list right now I remember AIA conventions 10 years ago, the president of AIA would say, well, look around this big hall and there's you know, 20,000 of you architects sitting in here. In 10 years, there will be half. And 10 years after that, half, because we're a profession that is hard to, you know, so many people who, who study architecture don't go on to become architects. They go into other, other areas of interest and related areas of activity, and that's fine. It's a beautiful thing to study. It's a great thing to practice. We just need to expose the young people to what we do as much as we can. And that's my plug for holding some young person's hand and showing them all the great things that architects do and see what happens. Yeah, well, that's definitely sage advice or sage something to say to younger people in order to keep the encouragement going. Because I think that a lot of the people who leave, it's because they became discouraged, you know, even if they had that sort of enthusiasm to begin with, (laughs) you kind of lose it along the way. It's true. (laughs) One too many bathroom details or something like that, you know? Yeah. You know, and and going on your own, you know, the European model of architecture, the way it's practiced is a lot of small firms and they team up to work on bigger projects. I think the USA model is bigger firms working on the bigger projects. And I, I think the smaller firm is is a very, you're in control of your own destiny and it, it just takes a lot of courage and it takes a lot of support to open up a practice. But but it's definitely, it's a wonderful thing to do. And I and within our own practice, we acknowledge how, how important it is to support people that want to open up their own practices. And we'll always do that if somebody wants to leave and we'll help them. But if people also do enjoy working within a larger practice, the larger practice has to be give people lots of room to grow and to have responsibilities and to be part of the decision-making teams and to have their voices heard. So I think what happens at Marvel is very much along those lines where everybody's participating. We design in a collaborative way and we want to we want to allow people to be able to grow professionally, which means direct their own skills and improve where they want to improve so you can move around and work on different things in our office. And that's key to a healthy working environment. Sounds like with everything that you're doing, you're always thinking about the bigger picture and having a well-balanced life is very important. But being able to sustain whatever you're doing, whether it's sustainability in building making sure that buildings are sustainable, people living in those buildings are living sustainable lives and having a well-balanced life, being a life that is more sustainable. It sounds like you're very concentrated and very conscious of it. And you don't often find that in the world. Thank you for doing that. Well, thank you for bringing the conversation back to that. I, The survival of the planet really does depend on carbon neutral and lowering our carbon footprint and architects have the capacity to specify and to to work with products that will help us get there. 
as we know, between 40 to 60% of of the carbon in the air comes from buildings or the byproduct of the products and, and how they're made and how they're sourced. The planet depends on architects for a resilient and sustainable future. And it's time for us to maybe be a little tougher on our clients, say, no, we really got to start using more of this and less of that and designing not so much for, you know, the aesthetics of some, you know, definition of beauty. What is beauty? And I think part of the definition of beauty has to be that the product is is sustainable, that it's carbon neutral. Beauty is not just something that you look at, but it's beauty is performative at the same time. That's been around for a while and that's not nothing new, but we have to just keep reminding ourselves of that. I agree. Well, thank you again, Jonathan, for being here with us today. I'm sure that everyone has gotten something out of hearing you talk and I could sit here for the next two hours listening to you. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. Thank you. It's been wonderful to talk to you out of every conversation, new things and unexpected ideas emerge. And I think this is proven to be the case in this hour that we've spent together. Thank you so much. I hope you'll join us again one of these days. Give us an update. Absolutely. Anytime. All right. Well, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you all. Bye. For more information about Marvel, Resilient Power Puerto Rico, and Protechos, check the link in the show notes. 